Mel's favorite part. Preaching the Bible, that's my favorite part. So welcome to my favorite part, especially when I get to do it. Over here we have Tate graduating in a couple hours, UAA, degree in philosophy. God bless you, Tate. Uh, last Sunday was graduation Sunday here, but uh, see, it's a special day. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it, Tate. I have an afternoon meeting with Lakewood Church in Houston online, so I apologize, but I'm proud of you, man. I have a degree in philosophy. You have a degree in philosophy. Together, we might be able to figure out how to scramble eggs. I'm not sure. Uh, the, the, the more you study philosophy, the less you know how to drive. You know what I'm saying? And uh, we just had our network conference, and every year, uh, or not every year, but regularly, uh, we get to nominate a woman to be at the highest office in the Assemblies of God, which is Executive Presbyter. They go through a process. They have one for each region, and Alaska elected uh, Reverend Faye Neiman to represent our state there, so um, we're proud of you, Faye. I was voted to be the janitor, so there's a difference in uh, reputation there. Uh, very, very pleased with that, Faye and uh, Chuck. Very proud of you guys and uh, thankful. At the end of the message today, we will do our uh, missions offering as we bring our, our offerings that fund the work of Christ around the world. Um, the need has never been greater than it is right now, and I appreciate all of you guys giving your utmost uh, and doing your very, very best. Lord, as we study the Bible today, we ask that we would uh, grapple with one of the big deals that the world struggles with, and that is the vengeance of God. Uh, the world struggles with this idea, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And so God, as we take a look at that, we ask you for your help. Amen. We're talking about becoming people of our greatest potential. Uh, years ago, I read a book that's in my top 10 books. I enjoyed buying one, I think, for uh, John Farr. It's called Leading Without Power. And it's a really small little booklet. And I read it, and it had a concept that got in my soul. And that is the concept of becoming people of realized potential. I want to be a person of realized potential. Uh, from the book of Ruth, we begin to realize that our full potential depend where you go, I will go. And so our fullest potential is related to our best friends. Where you go, I will go. And your people will be my people. Our fullest potential is related to our tribe. And your God will be my God. Our fullest potential is related to God. And then it says, far be it from me if anything but death separates me from you. And so really I'm calling that my commitment to these three things. And so we are, we are asking God to help us be people of fully realized potential. And that realized potential happens best among our friends, our tribe, and our God. Now, we are in the perfect place to study this because Alaska has 270 registered federal tribes. We have 270 federally registered groups. We probably have more than that. Those are just the ones that are federally uh, registered. 
And so, uh, and we're in a multi-ethnic church, by the way. I love that. I love very much getting to worship with people from many of those tribes. We get to worship with people from around the world. We get to have friends. It's, you know, like if you live in, in uh, Tulsa, you probably have to look a long ways to uh, find a close friend from Russia or a close friend from Africa or a close friend. I see back there we got our uh, Burkina Bay from Ghana in the back row there. Alice, I love worshiping with you every weekend. Uh, we have people from Nigeria and Samoa and Fiji and Tahiti and uh, even Anchorage. And so uh, it's, it's a great deal. And, uh, and so our fullest potential is related to relationships. And there's no way around the fact that no man is an island and that we are all interrelated. And so when we come to this idea of commitment to these things, what we're doing is we're taking a scientific equation on what commitment is, and right now we are running God through that equation. The equation is, you'll see it in your notes, it's treasure minus troubles. And then that would equal a sum. And you add to that your contribution. Minus your choices. And that equals your commitment. And so we're, we're running ourselves. We're going to go, uh, I'm working my way backwards through this. So we are putting God through this idea. And I think that uh, you might remember, this was several weeks back because we took Holy Week and uh, uh, Palm Sunday, Holy Week, and the week after for uh, traditional church liturgy ideas. This is by uh, a Commit to Win, How to Harness the Four Elements of Commitment to Reach Your Goals. And it's by a lady named Heidi Reeder, and uh, she has her Ph.D. in commitment. She teaches at Boise State University. She has her Ph.D. in commitment, and she analyzed the new commitment research and came up with this idea. Well, we covered the idea that God treasures us. Does, does this equation work for God? God treasures us. Uh, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Jeremiah 31.3. Yeah, God treasures us. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. You shall be my treasured possession. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Let me just highlight that last part for just one second. Uh, those of you that have responded to Christ, you placed your trust in Jesus for salvation. It is so cool that out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, you get to do that. <laughs> I got one amen. This is really, hey, I didn't see you. How are you? Our missionary to Alaska's children decided to come to church. Nice to see you today. Anyways, uh, out of all the people on the face of the earth, we are his treasured possession. And uh, I often wonder about the grace of God. I don't know how it works, but what if I were born in an atheist family in North Korea and had never had the chance to hear about Jesus? 
You know, what, what an what a interesting uh, thought of how people are born, where they're born, why they're born, when they're born. But anyways, for Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 6, and for those of you that have come to faith in Christ, out of all the people on the face of the earth, God has chosen you to be born into this. 1 Peter 2 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but once you weren't a tribe, but now you are God's tribe. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we've talked extensively about treasure. Today I want to take up a really interesting subject, at least for theologians it's interesting. If, if it's not interesting, enjoy your nap. And that is the question, are people trouble for God? So the idea is you treasure your Porsche and it cost you $20,000 and you treasure your $20,000 Porsche, but the engine blew up and uh, the tires went out and it's going to cost you $25,000 to repair it. And you're thinking, you know what? I had a $20,000 commitment to this car. It cost me 20. I do not have a $45,000 commitment to this car. So because your treasure is subtracted by your trouble, you realize, I'm selling this thing. I am not putting more money in that lemon. Okay, uh, anybody ever buy a lemon before? My dad said, son, Malden Assembly did not call you to be a pastor to drive a bad car. He said, you need to drive a good car. You're a man of God, and a man of God has a good car. And I was trying to buy the cheapest car I could find because I'm a tightwad. You know what I'm saying? I drive a car till it dies. So I come home one day, and there is a Porsche in my driveway. And my dad said, son, you bought that. You just didn't know you did. So I owned a Porsche. I couldn't afford the insurance. I'm a, I'm a broke preacher's kid, and I'm a broke youth pastor. So I tell you, Pastor Shenman, I say, Pastor Shenman, I got a car. I can't afford insurance. He goes, you know what? The church, uh, the church um, insurance covers our cars. I said, all right. So Muldoon Assembly insured my car. And I thought that was pretty cool. So one day during network conference, I might add, I go to network conference. Everybody's giving me grief. I say, I don't deserve grief. What's this grief for? The headlines of the Anchorage newspaper is what does Chugach Electric, NSTAR, and Muldoon Community Assembly have in common? Luxury sports cars. There we go. Yeah, I instantly was too much trouble for me to have a car my dad wanted me to have. And I went back to my beat up, uh, what was that? Uh, Datsun, Datsun B210. That's what I went back to. And, uh, but anyways, so we're, we're asking ourselves, you know, like, uh, uh, you treasure this, but the trouble is uh, maybe costly or the trouble is difficult. And so the commitment equation requires us to subtract from the treasure quotient the degree to which the entity is troublesome, is troublesome. And so it's a tough question to ask, especially if you uh, uh, like to think about the sovereignty of God. Are human beings trouble for God? And if so, how does the trouble I cause him impact his commitment to me? And uh, I think that uh, theologians are prone to not wanting to deal with the Bible the way that the Bible is actually written. And so we're going to grapple with how the Bible's actually written and kind of see if we can navigate that to a decent conclusion. Uh, we call Jesus the impossible possibility because God can't be man, 
but Jesus is. And man can't be God, but Jesus is. They're impossible, but they happen. And so we're talking about this impossible possibility. And uh, we might call this a divine paradox, uh, a divine paradox. No, Dr. Perkins, paradox is not two of you, two docs. You know, it's a pair of docs. A paradox, a statement that despite apparently valid reasoning from true premises, they are true premises, it leads to an apparently self-contradictory or logical, logically unacceptable conclusion. A paradox involves contradictory yet interrelated elements that exist simultaneously and persist over time. So are there paradox? Is there paradox in God? Absolutely. And if you don't like paradox, then you have to change the way the Bible's written. And so the verse I'm getting ready to take up uh, is changed very often by people who have a God that needs to be robotic, a God that needs to be Static, a God that needs no dynamism and no no adjusting and no changing. Uh, one guy I studied on this is a guy named R.C. Sproul, great theologian, way smarter than me, so you should probably go with him. However, he said the text we're about to take up cannot be read the way it's written because God could not have what this verse says God has. So he would suggest that the passages we look at today are what we would call in theology anthropomorphisms. Anthropomorphisms. An anthropomorphism is when you say about God, and under his wing shalt thou hide. Are you glad you can hide under the wing of the Lord today? Say aye. Yeah, he doesn't have wings. You know what I'm saying? He is not a bird. Uh, but they are giving an, uh, a human perspective to something that doesn't have that human quality or an earthly perspective to something that isn't in a heavenly quality. And so we would say, uh, uh, praise God that under his wing we hide, but we know he doesn't have a wing. And so it's called anthropomorphism. So some people erase the whole text I have today and say it's not at all accurate. It's just man talking about God in man's terms. The problem I have with that is unless it's obvious, like uh, God does not have a wing, he is not a bird, and under his, unless it's obvious, you can erase all of the Bible calling it an anthropomorphism. You can erase it all. You can say, well, God really didn't mean an eye of a needle. You know, it's just a point that, it, no, I think he meant it's, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get to heaven. All right, so bad news, we're rich. Now, maybe you don't feel rich, but compared to the world, if you want, go to the web and put in your yearly salary. There's, a, there's websites on the, that'll show you where you rank in the world based on your yearly salary. Everybody here is in the top 10% of the world, maybe the top 5%. The poorest of the poor in Alaska is in the highest percentages worldwide. And so it's like, I think he meant it's hard for us to get to heaven. It's hard for us to be saved. But then the disciples say, well, Lord, we're sunk. We're toast. We're history. He says, no, but with God, all things are possible. So that means even guys like you and me, it's possible for us to be saved. And do I have a witness? Yeah, we can be saved. It's exciting. And so uh, 
True premise number one, God cannot be troubled. So my question, are humans troubling to God? Does this equation work for God? No, it doesn't work for God because God cannot be troubled. Can you imagine a troubled God? Like if God had a bad day today, this would not be good. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, I'm kind of ticked. I think I'll blow up Saturn, you know, or whatever. It just, God cannot be troubled. All right. True premise number two, God is troubled by human beings. It's divine paradox. He can't be troubled, but he is. The Lord saw Genesis chapter six, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. My favorite part of this passage. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I don't want us to cross this verse out of the Bible or these verses. I don't want to say, you know what? This isn't true of God. The Bible says it's true of God, but it's an anthropomorphism. It is a metaphorically speaking. Really, God doesn't have a heart. So really, God can't grieve and really, God can't be sorrow, uh, uh, sorrowful. And, and no, I don't want to do that. I want to say I take this text to mean that in fact, in the heart of God, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Now just think with me for a moment about erasing this passage from the Bible as an anthropomorphism. And you say, you know what? It isn't true. God didn't regret and God didn't grieve in his heart and God wasn't sorry that he made him. Then why the flood? Now you got a God that's capricious. Now you have a God that's mean. Is God mean? And one reason I picked this subject up is it's in my uh, talk. It's in the system we're studying. It's also, I take it up, because the number one struggle for uh, unbelieving millennials is the vengeance of God. Young adults in our world today and, and even uh, others, not just young adults, they wonder, how in the world can you believe in a God that gives floods? How can you believe in a God that, that rolls that way? Is it, it's, it's not fair for you to ask me to put my trust in a God like this. But when you read the text and you realize that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. By the way, let me throw this in. It's not part of my message per se. My dad used to say at the conclusion of every sermon, he would say, and now, Holy Spirit, come and do your office work. I want every head bowed, every eye closed, no one moving around. I don't want anybody to grieve the heart of the Spirit as we close. You see what he's saying? My dad was trying to say right now, this God that's busy in his world and he's just fine. He can't be troubled. At the same time, if you interrupt in a spirit moment, right when somebody's at the moment of decision and you interrupt, it can actually grieve the heart of a God who can't be grieved. 
Here's one of the great lines of the New Testament. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Right? So here's back in Genesis 6. And it grieved him to his heart. I've known this. I've been working on this message actually for uh, over a year. Uh, I've read several books. I read a book on all the genocide passages of the Old Testament. I've studied this uh, as much as uh, almost anything I've ever studied. It grieved him. And in that, I said, God, I just... Please don't ever let me grieve your heart. I know you don't have a heart. But don't let me grieve the heart that I know you have. And God, may you never be sorry that you made me. Say, no, 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 no. Are you sure? Check this one out. Oh, okay, that's Old Testament. How about New Testament? Better you were never born than you hurt one of my little ones. In fact, it would be better if we tied a millstone around your neck, let's say it weighs 500 pounds, a millstone around your neck and threw you in the ocean. It would be better for you if we did that than if we let you keep on going. Well, what kind of God is that? That's Jesus who said that. That's Jesus who said that. And so we're diving into this thing. Can, can humans trouble God? You see, the vengeance of God is the other side of his great compassion. Please listen closely. The vengeance of God is the other side of his great compassion. If God loves Israel, he must be difficult on Israel's enemies. Or he doesn't love Israel. I say, uh, if somebody comes in and shoots me for my faith, I ask you to let him do it. Please don't take him out. I'm ready to go, right? But as your pastor, because I love you, I will go to any extent to defend you. If I love you, I actually have vengeance. If I, if, if uh, the way I put it in your notes, since God is totally committed to his creation... He must take action against that which would destroy his creation. You see, you see how it rolls. If, if we say, you know what, God is love, and has everything destroy love and takes no action, then God either isn't love or God doesn't have the power to take action. Since God is totally committed to his creation, he takes action against that which destroys it. Number two, since God loves humanity, he must take action against that which destroys humanity. So in the Genesis flood, mankind experiences the other side of God's great compassion, his vengeance. And it's looking back at, uh, I was talking to Dan McElrath yesterday about America. Looking back on the flood of Noah's day, we realize humanity today is no better than the humanity of Noah's day. Their rebellion is our rebellion. Their wickedness is our wickedness. And so we deal with this idea that in fact, you and I trouble the heart of God. Can he be troubled? No. Is he troubled? Yes, you and I can trouble the heart of God. My mom told me yesterday, I don't, I, I don't watch any news ever if I can help it. But my mom told me last night, she said that uh, right to life people, there's a, you know that huge screen in Times Square in New York? I've been there one time. It's maybe 
500 feet tall. I don't even know. It's a huge screen. And my mom said that pro-life people have purchased time on it this week, and they're going to show an abortion on the screen so that the world can see the pain a little baby goes through in that process. I think we're, I think we're worse than Noah's day. Don't, don't you think maybe we're a little worse? So humanity today is no better than the humanity of Noah's day. So why isn't there a flood right now? Why, why aren't we like in life preservers fighting for our life? Why isn't there a tsunami now? Because God shifted. Notice the shift in the heart of God following the flood. Genesis eight twenty one. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, they're out of the ark now, and uh, they are now worshiping God. God said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Did the flood change man's heart? No. After the flood, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. It didn't change the heart of humans. But the heart of God changed. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I'm a fan of Walter Brueggemann, and he said this, What has happened is a change wrought in the heart of God, who will no longer take vengeance. The move in God's heart from Genesis 6, 5 through 7 to Genesis 8, 21 suggests that instead of humankind suffering, God takes the suffering as his own. God resolves to turn the grief in on himself rather than to rage against his creation. God bears the vengeance of God in order that his creation can have compassion. There's no flood today because God took the flood for us. Since my sin, like Noah's generation, is troubling for God, how then will I experience the other side of God's great compassion? In what ways will I experience the anger of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God? Some people argue God is love and he cannot be grieved or filled with sorrow or anger. He, he never pours out wrath and judgment. That kind of church was summarized in 1937. You've heard of Reinhold Niebuhr who wrote the prayer, uh, uh, Lord, give me the strength uh, to know the difference. Help me uh, know what matters, what doesn't matter. Give me the strength to, to know the difference between the two. That's his brother. Here's what Richard Niebuhr said in 1937 about American Christianity. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the menstruations of a Christ without a cross. Wow. You see, God's great compassion and the other side of his compassion are the same yesterday, today, and forever. A thousand times Please, no, no, no. The Old Testament God and the New Testament God are not different. They're the same God. They're exactly the same God. 
This isn't a new day in which the God of the Old Testament somehow came to his senses and overcame his anger problem. Divine anger management classes did not exist. But what we learn is that on the cross of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God turned in upon God himself. That, that, that wickedness that God poured out wrath upon the world in the flood, he now pours out upon himself on the cross. In that way, Jesus' death on the cross is the new flood. And in that way, the death of Jesus on the cross is the new ark. Someone say amen. He's the new ark. You say there is no flood. Yes, there is. Well, where's the boat? The boat is Jesus. And the flood is the anger of God that God poured out on Jesus. And so what old preachers would say is hurry up and get in the ark of safety and Jesus. You say, well, I don't see a boat. The boat is invisible. The boat is the man, Jesus Christ. And he invites you into his, so you've heard that I am in Christ. Or uh, you, uh, the Bible would say that we place ourselves in the work of Jesus. And so the death of Jesus on the cross is a new ark. And I don't need to experience the vengeance and wrath of God because Jesus, God's son, took my place. On the cross, God decisively demonstrated his great compassion for me, his vengeance. Because he loves me, he took his vengeance in upon himself. Well, I'm going to get emotional if I go too much into this. Here's a song from my teenage years. I'm the one to blame. I caused all the shame. The day he bore my cross. He bore my cross. The wrath of God was for me, but God wanted to show me compassion, so he turned the wrath in upon himself. The Bible's revelation of the other side of compassion, if today I reject his provision of the cross, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Again, talking about my lunch with Dan yesterday, we were talking about patriotic songs and one that gets us going, it's not that patriotic, but we claim it, is glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth is marching on, right? The vengeance and the vengeance of his wrath. He has trampled out the grapes of wrath. Do you know where the word wrath is most in the entire Bible? In Revelation. And so today we say, you know what? I'm going to live any old way I want because I'm no trouble to God. He treasures me. My sin is no big deal. I'm, not, I'm just going to live. You know what? The Bible says that if you live in that way, there is a day of wrath that's coming. And you'll find out you were a lot of trouble for God. But 
He made the incredible contribution of his son Jesus to take all of your wrath that he would have for you and pour it out on Jesus. The wrath for my sin has already been poured out on Jesus. The flood has come. It hit Jesus and Jesus, God's son, took my place. Amen. That is so fantastic. You see, the gospel is good news. God is the impossible possibility. He can't be troubled, yet he is. And in his compassion, he took my other side of compassion upon himself. And in trusting Jesus, you and I are the recipients of God's great compassion. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Well, how does his blood get out of his body to me today? His blood got out of his body with a crown of thorns, nails in his wrist, nails in his his feet, spear in his side, whip on his back. His blood got out of his body in a flood called the cross. And how does it get to me? His blood is eternal because he was before time, in time, after time. And because his blood is eternal, when one drop of that blood fell on that uh, ground called Golgotha, it is the eternal sacrifice for whoever says, God, cover me with your blood and I am saved from the wrath of God that way. Praise God. Praise God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You come today thinking, if I were God, I'd be mad at me. Well, guess what? He is God. And he's given his anger toward you to his son, Jesus. And if you place your faith in Jesus, you get the destiny of salvation through Jesus. He gets the wrath. You get the reward because of the work of Jesus Christ. So am I trouble for God? Yes, in every way. Am I trouble for God? No, I'm no trouble for God. He took my troubles and his response to my trouble in upon himself. So can I say he treasures me on a scale of one to a hundred? Yes, he's a 100. I'm a treasure to him. Am I troubled to him? I'm 100 troubled to him, except he erased my trouble and he made the contribution of his son Jesus on the cross, which means I'm no trouble to him at all. His commitment score to me is a perfect 100 because he took my trouble in upon himself. And he made the contribution above any contribution. God is committed to me. God treasures me. God's son became my trouble. And God's son contributed his all for me in receiving God's vengeance and wrath for my trouble. The equation works for God. I'm treasured. He erased my trouble by the greatest contribution ever made in the history of the world. So, that's my talk today. I'm working on this. Remember, we started with this. Everybody here has relationships. You have quest friends, you have a tribe. 
And I believe that the question we learn from God taking our trouble is this. What must I take in upon myself so my best friends can have God's compassion through me? Here's a great illustration. I met a lady recently whose husband was unfaithful to her. And she came to meet with me about divorce. She said, you know, my husband has broken our marriage vows again. And I'm wondering if the Bible tells me to divorce him. Well, you know what? The Bible says you could. But the Bible doesn't say you should. Get it? The Bible says you could. But the Bible doesn't say you should. And as I talked with her, I watched the Holy Spirit work in her heart. And she said, you know what, Pastor Kent? I came in ready to divorce. But I'm going to go out and I'm going to take the pain of my husband's infidelity in upon myself. So he can see the compassion of God through me. Everybody wants a best friend like that. Who says, I'll take that in upon myself. You see, my fullest potential is only realized when I place my trust in Jesus' ministry on the cross. And extend this same love to you. I'm glad Jesus took my sin in upon himself. But I'm also glad when my wife takes my indiscretions in upon herself or my tribe says, you know what? He didn't really, I'll take that in on me. So because when I take it in on me, by God's grace, I can give you his compassion and his love. For here's what the Bible says, John chapter 15. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friend. I'll take that in upon myself, like God took mine in upon himself, that you might know his incredible compassion. Let's sing. Oh, no, let's not sing yet. I want one more thing I want to do. Sorry, Lynette, to run this in front of you there. Mission Sunday, right? All in favor of mission, say aye. I am so glad God put us in a part of the world that is now being persecuted. And I would like to say that this man's picture, this is our pastor in Burkina who was martyred this week for his faith. Uh, and uh, they came, not him, that's Freud Crum, Floyd Crumbly, that's Angie's brother. Did you get the picture of the Burkina Bay, Eddie? You didn't get that one? Okay. Anyways, our pastor in Burkina Faso, we have many pastors there, but they came to him and they said, if you don't leave this village and get your Jesus out of town, we're going to come in here and kill you. And he said, you know what? I'd rather go to heaven and desert my village. And last week, they came in and kept their word. You know what? He took their anger in upon himself. And I promise you, many radical Muslims will come to Christ.
because they've seen a martyr who gloriously and joyfully gave his life for Jesus Christ. Amen. Would the ushers help us give our, our missions offering today? And we have a song about the wrath of God that we'd like for you to join us in singing. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still and striving cease. Scorned by the ones he came to save. 
about this line, but I don't know how to sing it. All right. The wrath of God is satisfied. All in favor, say aye. Aye. Now love your neighbor as yourself. That's what I'm trying to say. Lead us in closing prayer, Melanie's. Dear Heavenly Father, as you watch over those who leave this building today, may you give them traveling grace and mercy. May you protect them, but most of all, help them to remember that your light shines in them and that as they walk into a world that tries to remove God from it, let the, your light shine and let them show compassion to their neighbors and, and love on one another so that people may know you all the more and that they may come to your church and your home and just want to get to know you just so, just to have that close relationship with you, oh God, so that they can be your servant, your child. Just let them have you, oh God. And so as we close today... May you protect them as they walk out into this world and keep them, oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As you go, Pam Hodges is here. She's a new missionary to Alaska Children. We're going to feature her later, but uh, she came today. So everybody come say hi to Pam right here and slip her $100 bills and tell her you love her. All right? See y'all. Have a great one.
I got a, I got a thing for me to help.